Hey, so this morning we're going to wrap up our series on forgiveness. It's been an uh, incredible three weeks uh, just diving through what does it mean to be forgiven, to forgive. And today we're talking about reconciliation. And um, I wanted to begin with a little bit of a story. So some of you know that I've got three kids. We call them our little savages because we are savages. And uh, oldest is four. I've got two-year-old twins. And I think it was about a month and a half ago, football season was still here. I'm mourning. It's about 22 weeks left until it comes back. Um, And uh, I think we were watching a game in the living room. Our kids were in their room playing, and we heard some crying. And if you're a parent or you know a parent, then you know there's different kinds of crying. There's the crying where they're whining. You ignore that. There's the crying where they're aggravating each other, and for the most part, you try to ignore that. And then there's the screaming, crying, I'm hurt, that, that you feel an uncontrollable urge to go and fix. This was the third kind. So we go into my son's room. He's holding his head, big crocodile tears coming down his face. And I said, bud, what happened? He's like, Max hit me. And apparently what happened was he has, this is his broom, and he turned it into a baseball bat and just... Boom, right into the back of his brother's head, um, which he didn't see coming. And so we were, uh, we were kind of trying to contain him, get him calmed down, put ice on his head. He said, Papa, the ice is too cold. So we pull the ice off, and the ice pack is covered in blood. So I freak out. Um, I'm a pastor, not a doctor. And uh, so my, my wife goes, you need to get out of here because you're freaking out. So I go to try to take care of our two-year-old son, who now realizes Brother's crying, brother's bleeding, dad is mad, and so he's now crying. Um, So the whole house is chaos. Um, And eventually we're able to say, hey, you need to go say sorry to your brother. Hey, you need to forgive your brother. Um, And it just reminded me of so many moments in my childhood where somebody said, hey, you need to apologize. And I'm like, sorry, you know, (laughs) or you need to make up, you know. And, And so many times that kind of pattern doesn't just stay in our childhood. It moves on into our adulthood, where we we struggle to really mean it when we forgive somebody. We feel like we have to reconcile, even though we don't necessarily want to. And so today, what I want to do is I want to ask, answer the question, when and how should we reconcile? This has been a, a few weeks in a series, and so if you haven't been here, I want to kind of catch up on where you've been. The first week, we talked about the foundation of forgiveness, and we said that Our ability to give forgiveness is directly related to the forgiveness that we've received. And so if we're going to forgive other people and give this away, we have to receive it ourselves. And for many of us, we've struggled to forgive people in the past, and that's been because we've been trying to forgive them in our own strength. And so week one was our ability to give forgiveness to other people is connected to the forgiveness we've received from God. Last week, we talked about how do we actually forgive, and we said that forgiven people can forgive. It doesn't mean that forgiven people always forgive. We saw that in the story uh, we looked at from Matthew. It doesn't mean that forgiven people forgive other people easily. It doesn't mean that we forgive them quickly, but it means that if we ourselves have been forgiven by God, because we're broken, sinful people too then we have been given the power to forgive other people and we can do it. It's possible. Now today, after talking about, you know, the forgiveness we've received and the forgiveness that we've given, we got to discuss what's next. And this has been the place that so many of us, I think, have wanted to rush to. Some of you have been waiting for this moment, all this series. Okay, what about reconciliation? How do we figure this out? What do we do with it? 
And one of the reasons I saved this for the last week is reconciliation is a destination we get to after doing other things. Some of you in your small groups have been wanting to rush to this discussion without going through the work of experiencing God's forgiveness, of actually forgiving other people. And one of the reasons why I think we struggle with reconciliation is we believe the myth that forgiveness and reconciliation are the same thing, and they're not. One is different from the other. The truth is they are very different things. They're, they're very different experiences, and one doesn't guarantee the other. If you forgive someone, you're not guaranteed that you're going to reconcile. And after you've forgiven someone, it doesn't mean you are reconciled. I ran into someone in the lobby last week, and I just said, hey, you got to come back next Sunday. It doesn't mean the pastor's saying it, come back next Sunday. It's because you're trying to do things that aren't forgiveness. That's actually reconciliation. And so this week, we're going to talk about what does that look like. And here's the big idea for this week. Forgiveness depends on me. Reconciliation depends on us. Forgiveness depends on me. Reconciliation depends on us. And as you can tell from this, a lot of what we're going to talk about today is the difference between what we do and what we control and what others do and what they control. And that's a huge part of what makes this such a difficult topic and such a messy subject. We've been talking about forgiveness within this definition of forgiveness that I shared with you the first week, that forgiveness is giving up my pursuit of revenge and trusting God to bring justice. We watched that video clip last week from the Amish Grace movie, and then one of the dads in that story says, forgiveness is giving up my right to revenge. So when we forgive somebody, we're, we're laying down that pursuit of revenge and we're trusting God that he knows how to bring justice better than we do. Well, on your handout, there's a place for you to write down a definition of, of reconciliation, which will kind of form up our discussion today. And that, de- that definition is this, that reconciliation is the process of restoring a broken relationship where everyone involved has experienced forgiveness. Now, you'll notice that there's a bunch of big words in here that we're going to unpack today. One of them is that reconciliation is a process. It doesn't happen in one conversation. It's restoring a broken relationship. It's involving everyone, not just me. And it's where everyone has experienced forgiveness. And so we're going to unpack that this morning as we look at a passage of Scripture. Now, one of the reasons I chose this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at is because it's a reminder that the people in the Bible aren't perfect. One of the reasons I believe the Bible is true is because it doesn't present us outside of Jesus with any perfect heroes. Even the heroes of our faith are broken, messed up people that if we brought them to you as a new staff member for our church, you probably would pass on hiring. Hey, we've got this new pastor, but he um, used to kill Christians. You want to hire him? (laughs) Hey, this guy right here, he betrayed Jesus. You want him to be your confidant? You know, hey, these two guys, they they deceived one another and their family is massively dysfunctional. He's going to lead our family ministry. You know, like these aren't the kind of people we would hire. And yet the Bible tells us the truth about them because we're as dysfunctional as they are. 
And we can read the Bible with humility going, these people aren't better than me. They're not different from me. They're human too. And we can learn from their experience and their story. So today we're going to be in the book of Genesis chapter 32. Now, before you freak out, I am not reading all four of these chapters in their entirety. We would be here all day. But I do want to talk about the story that is contained in these chapters about two famous brothers and their names are Jacob and Esau. They're twin brothers, and I've got an affinity for twins because I have a pair. Jacob and Esau were at each other from the moment they were conceived. Scripture tells us that even in their mother's womb, they were at war with one another, and the first one came out, and their parents named him Esau, and the second one came out. They named him Jacob because he was holding on to Esau's heel. That's the literal meaning of the word Jacob in, uh, in Hebrew is heel grabber. That's why they named him that. It wasn't because it was a family name. It's because it's what he was doing when he was born. And from that moment, Jacob has been after what Esau had for his whole life. Esau was a hunter. He was out hunting one day. Jacob was more of a homebody. He made some stew. Uh, Esau came home, said, hey, Jacob, give me some of that stew. He said, sure, brother, give me your birthright. Give me the inheritance that dad would give you because you're the older brother and I'll give you some stew. And Esau does this and he begins to resent his brother. Down the road, mom and Jacob tag team against dad and Esau to allow younger brother Jacob to steal older brother's blessing. This thing wasn't just dysfunctional on the kid level, it was dysfunctional on the parent level too. And after this happens, Esau sends word to Jacob, I'm going to kill you. This isn't like when my younger son turned to his brother and said, if you hit me with this broom again, I'm going to kill you. This is grown men. You know they can actually do it. And so Jacob runs away and 20 years pass before they see each other again. So if, if you've got some stuff with your family, welcome to the Bible. They have stuff with their family too. And we're going to begin reading in Genesis 32. And this is what we read. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Instructing those messengers, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban, who was their relative, and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male servants and female servants. I have sent to them to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. He's trying to pay off his brother, hoping that he's going to forgive him. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you. Good news. And there are 400 men with him. Bad news. 400 men is translated army. And so Jacob is nervous. And so in verse nine, he begins to pray to God. He says, oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, oh Lord, who said to me, don't, have, you, have you forgotten God? Return to your country and your kindred that I may do you good. Just in case you forgot God, you sent me on this trip. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed the Jordan, which is the river he was standing next to. And now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children. 
Jacob's not sure how this is going to work out. That's what happens in reconciliation. You start moving towards the other person and you're not sure what they're going to do in response. Pursuing reconciliation is a vulnerable act. That's why it makes us so scared because we're exposed. In the next chapter, verse 33, this is what we read. And so Jacob put the servants with their children in front and then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. And he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and he embraced him and he fell on his neck and he kissed him and they wept. This is the kind of hallmark moment. You know, they saw the camera down, put the emotional music underneath it, you know. And Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Why'd you send me all this stuff, Jacob? And Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. And Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. I don't, I don't need this stuff. And Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my presence from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you've accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged Esau and Esau took it. It's a powerful moment of reconciliation. He wasn't sure how things were going to go and yet they come back together. And one of the things we're going to learn about reconciliation today is it doesn't always work out the way we think. We don't always rediscover the relationship we used to have because what happens between 33 verse 11 and verse uh, 27 of verse 35 that we'll read in a second is that these two guys wanted to live in the same place. They wanted to live in the same area. They wanted to be close to each other, but they couldn't because God had so blessed each of them individually. In this day, blessing wasn't seen in your Visa card or your Amex account or your savings account. What was seen was how much livestock you have. And they had so much livestock, they literally couldn't inhabit the same place. There wasn't enough ground for them. And so they have to go their separate ways. They go live in separate areas. And the final moment we see that we know reconciliation has happened happens in verse 27 of chapter 35 of Genesis. And here's what we read. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Their dad was really, really old. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. Now read the last sentence. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. They came back together to do what sons should do to bury their dad. God, I pray this morning with the names and the faces, the relationships and the emotions that are in our hearts as we think about those who we have hurt and who have hurt us, as we dream about is reconciliation even possible? And if it is, what could it look like? I pray that you would speak to us through this story that has been told for thousands of years. That's a testimony to what you can do when you decide to transform a human heart. In your name we pray, amen. This morning, what I want to do after reading that passage is to share with you four insights about reconciliation. Because I think this passage gives us great wisdom as we pursue reconciliation with those we've hurt and those who've hurt us. 
And here's the first insight. Reconciliation can take time and demand great patience. This process is not one that happens overnight. And it challenges us to have incredible patience. In the story, as I said, over 20 years passed between Jacob running away and him reuniting with Esau. And we have no record that there was any contact between them. There's no record that they wrote letters to one another. They couldn't Skype one another. You know, they, they don't say that there's someone who reached out and checked on things. All we know is that Esau was so angry he wanted to kill his brother. And Jacob found it impossible to not deceive and take advantage of those who were closest to him. And there came a moment in time where both of them changed, where Esau said, I no longer want to kill you. And Jacob said, I realize that, that I hurt you deeply. And there's this cliche around that says that time heals all wounds. And it's baloney. Time is not magical. Something that magically happens as the calendar turns. But what does happen in time is that God allows us to see things more clearly. What we did wrong and what others did wrong. Where, where we're missing it and where we need to change. And God is at work in time, often in ways we cannot see. That's why we have to be incredibly patient in pursuing reconciliation because it does not arrive on our timetable. I read, I read this week, somebody said, you can't have a breakthrough in a drive-through. <laughs> we live in a drive-through world. We want it to be fast, fast, fast. And when the page doesn't load in two seconds on our phone or when the person gets our, our, our food order wrong or when I go to Starbucks and they spell my name with one T instead of two T's, we lose our minds. We can't apply the speed of our modern world to our most important relationships. If we do, we will find ourselves incredibly frustrated and annoyed because God doesn't move at the speed you'd always like him to move. There's a myth that says, because I forgave them, I must be reconciled to them. A lot of us believe this. We go, well, if I forgave them, then, then we have to reconcile. Remember the big idea. Forgiveness depends on me. Reconciliation depends on us. Therefore, forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. The Bible doesn't have to go the way that it did. Jacob could have said, you know what? I'm sorry, I hurt Esau. And Esau could have said, I still want to kill you. Esau could have said, I'm ready to forgive you, Jacob. And Jacob could still be the trickster and the heel grabber and not a person who'd be wise to reconcile with. Forgiveness depends on us. Reconciliation is something that's going to be bigger than just me. It's going to be something that involves other people. And one of the, the verses that's helped me to see this clearly in, just, in one sentence is Romans 12, 18. It begins with the words, if possible... And maybe the, the thing you came today that you need to hear is that reconciliation isn't always possible. Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, not them, you, live peaceably with all. 
Reconciliation is not always going to be possible. And you can only do what only you can do. But if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably. Pursue reconciliation. The second insight about reconciliation that I want to share with you is that reconciliation moves us forward, not backward. Reconciliation moves us forward, not backward. If you think about it, when Jacob and Esau have this moment, this reunion in Genesis 33, they hug and they kiss and they cry. They're not going to go back and live in mom and dad's house. Because they each have wives and children and the land won't even support them living in the same place. And so there is no going back to the way it used to be. And so if you're going to reconcile with somebody, I want to share with you this morning that you can't get back the way it used to be. When that moment happened or that fight happened or that betrayal occurred, that relationship died. And it's not coming back. And if you're going to reconcile with them, you're going to build a new relationship. You're not going to resuscitate the old one. Yes, it's still the same people, but those people have grown and changed and transformed. And so you're going to have a new relationship. This is hard for us because we get nostalgic. We think back to those beautiful moments we shared before tragedy occurred, those beautiful memories before betrayal happened. And when we start reconciling, we go, I want that back. And that's not a bad thing. It's a human thing. But you will put your reconciliation at risk if you're driven by nostalgia. You have to surrender that era for the sake of building a new one. And if you're addicted and you're caught up in trying to get this back, I can promise you what will happen. You won't get this one back and you'll destroy any chance of a new one. You have to surrender that. Somebody asked me recently, Scott, how do you know when you've forgiven someone? How do you know when you've reconciled with them? And here's what I said. I said, you'll know when you've forgiven. We'll know when we've reconciled. If forgiveness depends on me, only I can know. I can't be in your heart. Only you know when you've set aside revenge and when you can actually celebrate that something good happened to them and not be angry and bitter. Only you can know that. But, but we both can know when we reconciled because we both want to be together in the same place. We both don't dread coming to the same event. The brothers came back together not to live in the same place, but to bury their parents. That's the moment that we know that they reconciled. Because one of them said, I'm not going to the funeral. If he's going, I'm not going. If he's going, I'm not going. But they both showed up because they loved their dad. Reconciliation moves us forward, not backward. The third insight is that repentance precedes reconciliation. Repentance precedes reconciliation. What happens many times when, when we've been hurt, other people hurt us, is we have conversations like this. We go, man, I'm so sorry I hurt you. I'm so sorry. That's, that's regret. We call it regret. I, I regret that I hurt you. I regret that you feel bad. Or we go, remorse, man, I, I'm, I can't believe that I did that. I, I, I feel myself just this great weight about what I did wrong. That's remorse. Neither one of those is repentance. Because you can say both of those things 
and then do it again. People have told you, I'm so sorry I hurt you. And then they did it again. I feel so remorseful. I feel so bad. And then they do it again. See, the difference between remorse and regret and repentance is that repentance is more than remorse and regret. It's true change. We know repentance is beyond those two because repentance actually gives us evidence that change has occurred. We get this word repentance from the Greek, and it's the word metanoia. In the Bible where you see the word repent, it's the Greek word metanoia, and it means to turn from, God, from sin and return to God. To turn from sin and return to God. It's literally the idea of a U-turn. You realize I'm going the wrong way, and you don't just stop and puff the side of the road and go, went the wrong way. No, you, you turn around and you begin going the other way. That's repentance. And that has to happen before there can be reconciliation. If you build reconciliation on just remorse or just regret, you may find yourself in the exact same place you were in what's called the insanity cycle. Doing the same thing, wondering why you don't get different results. And this is a story that, that really brings my mind back to about um, 13 years ago. I had been dating a girl, not the woman I married that you all know, somebody else. And um, we broke up and it was really nasty, really bad. Um, and, and in the days that followed, I'm not proud of this, but I said a lot of mean things about her. Really mean things. One day I realized that that was wrong. So I wrote her a letter. I said, I'm sorry. But it wasn't repentance. It was remorse and it was regret. And the reason why I know that is I kept saying mean things. I didn't change. And I will never forget the booth I was sitting at in a restaurant in the San Francisco International Airport eating a chicken burrito. I'd taken two bites opened my computer up, because you had to open your computer in those days to get email, um, opened my computer up, pulled up my email, and lost my appetite. Because I got an email from her. And whew. If you ever seen the X-Men movies, she was Wolverine, and I was one of those no-name characters who lasts two minutes. <laughs> I mean, she just, the, the barbs came out, and she just, she shredded me. I thought she were an honorable man. I thought you had integrity. I thought you loved Jesus. I thought you cared about me. She said, you didn't mean what you said in that, in that letter because you just kept doing it. Don't you think I would have heard? All my friends told me. And the truth was, she was right. And everything she said. And I realized that there was nothing I could do. The only thing I could do was change. And so in that restaurant, threw the burrito away, and I said, I'm going to change. And so for months, I said, you know what I'm going to do? From this day forward, I am never going to speak a bad word about her again. I can't make her trust me. can't make her believe in me. can't make her want to be my friend. can't make her want to be in the same room as me. But what I can do is I can speak about her with honor and dignity and respect. And about three and a half months later, I went to my car, and there was a little note underneath my windshield. 
And it started with, dear Scott, I'm sorry. I hurt you. You hurt me and I was in so much pain that all I wanted to do was hurt you back. And I said some things that were true, but I said them in a way to make you hurt like I hurt. And that was wrong. And I've been watching you. And you have changed. Would you please forgive me? Now, we didn't start dating again, you know? I haven't talked to her in years. She married somebody and had kids. I married somebody and had kids. We went our separate ways. But in those days that we were still in the same place, we could be in the same room and not have that desire of get me out of here as soon as I can. We could be in the same place and say, hey, how's it going? Hey, how's it going? When her dad passed away in a tragic car accident, I I wrote a a blog about it because he was a great man who impacted me. And one of her cousins found it. And so she wrote me a letter and said, thank you so much for honoring my dad. See, the challenge about forgiveness is that that we want to forgive, but forgiveness doesn't guarantee reconciliation because the person has to actually change. And if you forgive someone, there's a myth that says you should forget it ever happened. For some of you, you shouldn't forget because that person hasn't actually changed. And you should forgive them because God calls you to and you want to be free. But if they haven't changed, you shouldn't forget. And our brains are not like our computers. I put files in my recycle bin and I hit empty it and they're gone. My brain doesn't work like that. I can't go, oh, forget, and then it's gone. Forgiving and forgetting are two very different things. And for some of us, we need to flip the script a little bit, and it's not other people who've hurt us. It's us who've hurt other people. And if people aren't reconciling with you, I know this is going to be really hard to hear, but I want to ask you a question. Are they seeing something you're not seeing? Because I said, why wouldn't she forgive me? And the reason why is I wasn't ready to be the kind of person who could be trusted again. Dale Burke, in one of his books, wrote these words. He says, look in the mirror before you look out the window. Before you go blame them for how they're not trusting you. Look in the mirror and say, am I ready to be in that relationship again? Am I ready to be trusted again? Fourth and final insight is reconciliation doesn't always work out the way that we would like. Reconciliation doesn't always work out the way that we would like. See, God promises to to work in our hearts, and yes, he does long to transform us, and I believe his desire is to see relationships that have fractured be healed. But, But that often means we have to open ourselves up to God transforming us, and we don't always do that. As I said, Esau had to choose to forgive his brother and no longer want to kill him. Jacob had to believe that he actually was wrong, that he'd betrayed his brother and he needed to change his ways. And even when they did reconcile, they didn't go back to the way things were. They couldn't even have it the way they wanted and live in the same place. And there are places in our lives where the reconciliation we desire won't always work out the way that we like. And one of those areas is abuse. 
If you've been physically, emotionally, spiritually, or verbally, I think I had all those. If you've been abused by somebody, you may not need to reconcile with them because they may still be a dangerous person. Yes, you need to forgive them so you can be free from bitterness and toxicity. It does not mean that you need to jump back in that relationship without watching for repentance or change first. You might say, Scott, that's not a normal thing to hear from pastors. Well, it should be. When we lived in Phoenix for, for, uh, I lived in Phoenix for 14 years, but when I was there, Danny prosecuted domestic violence cases for five and a half years. And in not one of those cases in five and a half years did a single pastor show up to defend the rights of the victim. Every time a pastor came to court, it came to ask for a lesser sentence for the defendant. And that was, this, that was the experience of every one of Danny's 14 colleagues in that bureau. The church has a reputation for caring more about redeeming and rehabbing the defendant than we do about protecting the victim. And I can't promise you I'm going to be your perfect pastor, but I can promise you one thing. That will not be us. We have been called to look out for those who are vulnerable and to protect them. And I want to see men who have, because it's predominantly men, who have abused be changed. But the three to five million women and children who are abused in this country every year should not be running from churches because we're forcing reconciliation. They should be running to churches because we step in the way and we say not here. Some of you... Just a little passionate about that. Um, some of you sent in questions, and I wanted to answer them here. One of you said, what if the offender doesn't want forgiveness? Well, that's why forgiveness depends on you, and reconciliation depends on us. Because if they don't want forgiveness, they may not want reconciliation. And reconciliation doesn't always go the way you want. I know that's tremendously difficult. But you're not in charge of Reconciliation. It involves two people. Another one of you asked, you said, what if a person hurts you on purpose and tells you you have to forgive me? Well, I call that abuse. Because yes, the scriptures do call us to forgive and they do call us to set aside that revenge so we can be free and follow Jesus. But that doesn't mean that we put ourselves in harm's way as if that's the holy thing to do. There are people who are unsafe and just because you've been in a relationship doesn't mean you need to stay in that relationship. Final question. Somebody asked, after forgiveness and reconciliation, how do you stop allowing the person to continue hurting you? One of the reasons that Henry Cloud and John Townsend's book, Boundaries, has been a bestseller for 20 years is because we need to understand that there are safe people and unsafe people and putting up a boundary and saying no, no more is not unholy, but it's God-honoring. And reconciliation is not always the best way. Sometimes it's the path to even more pain. That isn't to say that God doesn't often lead us down roads that are difficult, but I believe God is not honored by us stepping back into an abusive relationship and allowing that person who has lacked repentance to continue to hurt us. 
There's a myth that says that I need to tell the person I forgave them. And if you've been abused by them, sometimes you need to forgive them and move on. Sometimes what happens is when we've, we have been hurt by other people or we have hurt them, telling them becomes one last way to get even. I remember standing in the lobby of my church in Phoenix. Someone came to me and said, hey, you don't remember this? I barely know you. We've talked twice. But the last time I saw you in the lobby, you were really mean to me and ignored me. And it really turned me up. And I had to go see somebody and talk about it. And it's been months. But don't worry. I've forgiven you. I've moved on. See you later. And they left. (laughs) And I was a mess. Like, I don't even know you. And now I need therapy, you know? Like, (laughs) sometimes... Telling the other person, I forgive you, is one last opportunity to put the knife in and turn. Because they didn't know. They didn't intend it. And they don't need to know. You do. So I've, as one friend continues to remind me, I keep opening hornet's nests in these messages, and I want to give you some steps to be able to process them, some things to do in the days to come, because this isn't a series that we do for three weeks, and poop, we're done, moved on, all taken care of. It's a lot more complicated than that. The, the first action item I'd encourage you to do is at the bottom of your handout right here are some discussion questions, and I'd encourage you to work through these on your own, And I'd encourage you, if you're not plugged into one of our community groups, to join one and begin working through this. My group is going to spend time with these on Friday night. Because it's not enough to hear a message on reconciliation. Now you've got to go do the work. And for most of us, it's not going to be done between now and next Sunday. Secondly, if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to write your letter of forgiveness. Last week we talked about writing the person who hurt you a letter of forgiveness to acknowledge and deal with the hurt that happened. If you didn't get a copy, you can get one at the belong table, sorry, the welcome table in the lobby. You could also get one online if you're watching underneath this video. They look like this. I wrote mine this morning at 520. And I tried to burn it and it wouldn't burn. It was like a metaphor for something, you know? <laughs> Four matches and a lighter later, half of it burned. I tore up the rest, threw it in the trash, and said, God, what are you trying to tell me? (laughs) Giving up this stuff is not easy. It's not easy. I I can preach about it, but doing it is something else entirely. And so maybe you've been putting off that letter. Write it today. Third, identify your next step in pursuing reconciliation. I didn't walk you through a step, five-step plan to reconcile because that's not how it works. It's not a formula. Maybe what you need to do is you need to call the person and say, hey, can we have lunch? Maybe if they won't talk to you, you need to spend time praying that God would work in their heart. Maybe you need to get somebody who's a third party who knows both of you but isn't attached to an outcome to be an intermediary. Maybe you need to ask the question, should I reconcile? I don't know. But pick the step that is your next step. And for some of you, that next step is going to be number four, and that's surrendering the outcome to God. I have to tell you, one of the biggest temptations I face is one I think there are other people struggling with, is that when God calls me to be obedient, I want to know what's the outcome. 
Okay, God, I'll do this, but only if you make this happen. God, I'll forgive them, but only if they take accountability for what they did and only if they reconcile on my terms. If you are obeying God, but dictating the outcome to him, you're not following God, you're following you. And one of the temptations that we're going to face is God is calling us to forgive. God is calling us that if it's possible, as far as it depends on us, to live peaceably and pursue reconciliation, but we have to surrender the outcome. I can't promise you how this is going to go. But I do believe that when Christ hung on the cross so that you and I could be free, this is one of the things he wanted to free us from. The toxicity of bitterness and unforgiveness and revenge. It's for freedom that you have been set free. And my prayer is in the days to come, you live that freedom in greater and greater ways. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for the ways that you've been at work in our hearts in these days. God, this is so not easy, and some of us are glad this is a three-week series and not a 13-week one, because it would just be too hard. Just because we're here at church doesn't mean that we haven't experienced real life with real wounds and real pain. God, we wish that following you would exempt us from that. But you yourself were wounded and betrayed by those closest to you. And so we're not surprised when we are too. God, where you're speaking to the hearts of everyone who can hear my voice, I pray that you would give them courage to take the very next step. Not 10 steps down or 15 steps down, but the next thing that they feel like you're leading them to do. And with each step, we pray that you give us the grace. You promise us in the scriptures that your power is made perfect in weakness. And so we glory in our weakness and our struggle to forgive and our our doubt for reconciliation. And we pray that in our weakness, we would experience your strength. For when we are weak, then you say we are strong. God, we don't know if reconciliation is going to happen. But what we do know is that if we invite you into our heart to do the work that only you can do, we can sing with bold honesty, it is well with my soul. We pray these words would be true. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.